Hello, and welcome to Will We Make It Out Alive? I'm Amy, the poop detective. And I'm Jen, the magical mapper. This is episode four, plugging away at the South Salish Lowland Prairies. It's all about conservation programs with the Washington Sustainability and Prisons Project. In this episode, we will learn a little about the umbrella of the conservation programs with Kelly Bush, and then we will go into depth in one of the specific programs, the Conservation Nursery Program with Carl Elliott. This season is all about the Sustainability in Prisons Project, otherwise known as SPP, how they bring education, nature, and training into the prisons to reduce recidivism and protect and enhance our environment. We now know that this season is at least six episodes long, and it (laughs) still could be seven episodes long. This season, we interview a variety of people from SPP and organizations and individuals that have participated in the program. Since we will be talking about the South Salish prairies today, I thought it would be fun to start with a little fun fact. I'm sure you've all heard of prairie dogs, but have you heard of prairie cats? Mm, No. Uh Uh-huh. The cougar is sometimes called the prairie cat. Wait. We also sometimes call them gens, cats of the prairie. Uh, Rude. (laughs) Do they live on the prairie? They can. Oh. Jen recently had a face-to-face or a Jen-to-Jen experience when we took a back way from Florence to Eugene. We stopped for a quick break. At one point, Jen made some commotion and Jay and I were wondering if we should run to the car, which was thankfully only about 10 feet away, or get out our cameras because our Jen was speechless. When she finally did get some words out, it was like a cougar mating call, if you know what I'm saying. It was not. It was really cool, though. She indicated something like cat or Jed or cougar. <laughs> Apparently, Jay got a really good look at it, too. But unfortunately, all I saw was the tail as it headed back into the brush. Really, my ideal cougar encounter since we were so close to the car and I had my Jen there to protect me from the other Jen. And so I didn't have to worry about whether or not one of them was going to follow slash hunt us as we continued down the trail. It was really cool, though. We had a moment. We locked locked eyes. eyes. And it was magical. It was so random. We were actually supposed to go on this one road, but that was gated. So we had to continue up the road a different way because there's no backtracking. No backtracking. No. And then we had a cougar spotting. So Mm -hmm. that was pretty stinking cool. And with that awesome tidbit, let's get right into our interviews today. Hi, Kelly. Welcome back again. Hi, thanks. Maybe you could tell us about what some of the conservation programs are. So we have a a few different types of ecological conservation programs. These are programs that primarily work with threatened or endangered species or native organisms. We have several different types. Some work with organisms such as the western pond turtle or the Taylor checker spot butterfly. We also have several native plant programs. Some programs focus on growing native prairie seeds. Others focus on growing native prairie plants. We're just getting ready to start a new one that is focused on growing sagebrush or other shrub step plants. Cool. Yeah, so that gives you a rough sense of some of the conservation programs. What are some of the overarching goals of this program? Yeah, so the overarching goals of the conservation program are to provide education and training for the incarcerated participants while also providing opportunities for hands-on work with different threatened and endangered species. So we think of these a lot like internships, where people are both having education and hands-on experience doing uh, work with different organisms. Awesome. Cool. Are there any new conservation programs on the horizon? Yeah, so I mentioned that we are just getting ready to start a new sagebrush conservation program, and that will be based on the east side of the state, and it will have pretty extensive education and training components. We've just completed a draft syllabus for it, so it's very much like a course, but while also having folks help grow sagebrush. This program is targeting areas that have been devastated by wildfire Mm. and it's replacing non-native species. So it's part of a larger effort at wildfire recovery and it's a broad collaboration with lots of different state and nonprofit organizations involved. And just this little piece of it is incarcerated individuals receiving the education and training to help grow plants that will go out onto restoration sites. 
We also have a few other collaborations that are smaller, but that are paired with other existing programs. So one that we're working on right now is the folks that care for the Western pond turtles. That's a very seasonal program because the turtles get released. Mm -hmm. And we've always paired that with other programs. In our current restart of that turtle program, we're looking to pair it with an acoustic bird monitoring program where they would learn how to identify the bird calls of, I think it's 12 different species from audio files. And those audio files are pulled from different age classes of forest. So this is tacking onto a study that some folks are doing on presence absence of different bird species in different age classes of forest. And so the incarcerated people involved will both learn about how to identify birds via call, but they'll also learn how to process that kind of data, learn more about data analysis, learn more about different age classes of forest and you know how they have different species present or absent within them. There's audio data being collected from multiple sites on the Olympic Peninsula. And so we're partnering with a scientist to involve them in essentially citizen science, right? This is sort of a mm-hmm. citizen science project where she's got the training tools available. And she was really excited about working with this population. The alignment there is that she sees, as we do, that engaging, you know, people that are traditionally overlooked in science could be a really powerful thing. And so she was really excited to work with the, the folks that, that we work with. That's awesome. I mean, that makes me think of so many things. Like, do they participate in the Christmas bird count for the Audubon Society and things? Like, are there birds present in the prisons? You know, I don't know. (laughs) It's like so many possibilities. Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, they haven't, but we've helped with the Cornell Citizen Science Project where they monitor feeders. Mm-hmm. We just set up feeders at the prison and so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We paired that actually with the butterfly program so that some okay. folks were monitoring those feeders. So we're definitely interested in citizen science projects. One of the partnerships that we've been considering is with the UC Davis Center for Community and Citizen Science. And so I feel like there's a lot of really exciting possibilities out there Mm -hmm. for how to bring science inside and how to really help people engage with the natural world, even in that setting. Right. So cool. Is there anything else that you would like to add about conservation? I'm hoping that my other colleagues covered it, but you know, like we've talked about before, I think it's just uh, important to emphasize that these programs are not about cheap labor, right? This isn't about just producing things. This is about an investment in people, about bringing them education and training. In these programs in particular, what we witness anecdotally is a real shift in self-efficacy, how people seem to feel about themselves when they participate in these programs, that their confidence seems to shift their enthusiasm for learning, whether it's about science or not. I mean, of course, it's great. I want more scientists in the world, but just even people getting out of it a new relationship with education, with their own self-confidence, I think is huge. And we definitely see that. We have folks interacting with us who it's so routine that they will comment like, I didn't know I was capable of this this. And while we don't have any doubt, they do. And so them getting that experience seems to make a difference. I wish I had more analyzed data for you on that, but it's something that we get to witness on a regular basis. So I just really want to emphasize this isn't about how many plants did they produce or how many butterflies did they produce. That's a, that's a great side benefit. Don't get me wrong. It's great. We need help with recovery efforts, but it's definitely a side benefit. It's not what's at Mm -hmm. the center. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us again today, Kelly. Thank you. Next, we will be interviewing another rock star, Carl Elliott, the Sustainability in Prisons Conservation Programs Manager. He has been in this position since 2010, but has many more years of experience in sustainable agriculture and organic gardening, including as the plant man on KUOW's weekday. Thank you for joining us today, Carl. Oh, good day. Can you tell us more about the Conservation Nursery Program and why it's important? Yeah, the Conservation Nursery Program was started in 2009 in the South Salish Lowland Prairie area in Olympia, Washington. And it focused on restoration plants, plants for ecological restoration in that area. And that has a particular ecosystem um, and a landscape that is unique because most people, when they're thinking of Western Washington, they think of that sea of Douglas fir forest, that green, that deep forest that you get lost in and Sasquatch probably lives there and everything. (laughs) But in the south uh, end of the, the Salish Sea are lowland prairies that were created by human manipulation 
for at least 5,000 years. Wow. This has created a prairie ecosystem, and the ecosystem is really stretches in spots all the way from Vancouver Island south to Eugene is this prairie, related prairie uh, landscapes. And in the South Salish lowlands, they're called glacial outwash prairies because they have a unique glacial soil, soil that was created when the glaciers actually essentially spit out gravel. Right. Created brand new watersheds and a whole landscape that's unique to the area. And that uniqueness and the isolation of of the landscape and ecosystem has created numerous plants, animals, and their relationships that aren't found in other parts of Washington state. And certainly not found in what most people would think of, again, as the the fir forests that are so common. Mm -hmm. So land managers in this area wanted to be able to have plants grown for restoration of these prairies that were from seed collected in these prairies that were going to benefit the animals and the insects that are found there. They wanted to be regionally specific. And oftentimes you can't get regionally specific plants when you're looking in a region that encompasses three small counties, Mm. which would be where these glacial outwash prairies would be. And a lot of these plants did not have protocols or techniques or cultivation rules about how you would raise them in a nursery. So where do you start? And they approached the sustainability in prisons project, these land managers, and the land managers include the Department of Defense, the Fish and Wildlife Division at Joint Base Lewis-McChord. It included Washington State Department of Fish and Wildlife, included Washington State Department of Natural Resources, nonprofits. One that stands out that people might know is Wolf Haven International. Oh, right. That's in Tenino. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to be able to have plants that they would collect the seed bring it and have it grown out for restoration purposes. And they were thinking kind of small. They were thinking small because they wanted to target the recovery of the Taylor's checker spot butterfly. So the majority of the plants we grow at the nursery are for the recovery of the Taylor's checker spot butterfly. Oh, that's interesting. I did not know that. Through the years, that has been the focus. And the idea is these targeted areas where they're going to release the butterflies, those would be very densely planted with plugs. I should define some things here. (laughs) So you can restore habitat, um, and there's many steps that go into the restoration of these prairies to remove the weeds, restore natural processes and human use processes that existed for a long time that helped create these prairies, and then be able to introduce the plants to those. You could do that from seed. You could do it from plants and how you got those plants mattered and how you propagated and grew them on. But the quickest way to establish a lot of plants, and then the point there is the quickest is for these recovery sites for the butterfly where they're going to release them is to plant out small plants that are we call them plugs in the nursery business they're not full-grown gallon pots that you would see mm-hmm. they're tubes they're anywhere between seven cubic inches or 10 cubic inches depending on the species and they're planted very densely sometimes six inches apart you can imagine caterpillars can't move very far between lunch and dinner these little tiny caterpillars so they have to mm-hmm. plant these plants really closely together and that was the technique to jump start these small areas they're densely planted and that's where they release the butterfly so they wanted to get a quick growth of plants in those areas since 2010, we've discovered that some plant species establish themselves quickly and reproduce well from seed. Other species 
don't reproduce from seed or they don't grow quickly enough and we can give them a jump start in the nursery. A good rule of thumb is the bigger the seed, the more choice it is for rodents and other mm. creatures to eat. Okay. So the best example of that I've seen at Joint Base Lewis McCord, they've had these little rocks that had cameras in them. They're not really rocks. They're plastic rocks, right? <laughs> they're plastic sure. rocks and you can get really micro now. I don't think it's just because it's Department of Defense, but they can get really small <laughs> and they set them out in the field. And most of these areas have been prepped by burning during the summertime and then mm -hmm. the seed in western washington is dispersed anywhere between september and november when we get the rains that come back into the area that are routine and enough to soak the soil so plants can become established so the burned area you can imagine it's kind of patchy there's little bits of kind of they didn't burn and then there's some really burned over areas that are bare ground and you put the seed out there the little seed the mice can't see but the larger seed that some of the plants that are choice like the balsam root or the balsam oryza deltoidiae which is the it's a deltoid leaf shaped balsam root so the leaf shape gives the name <laughs> to the plant and it looks like a sunflower kind of like a small sunflower and it has sunflower like seeds so they would put this mix of seeds out, maybe 10 species, put them all out there, got the little camera, don't forget the camera. And in 24 hours, they don't know how many mice because they didn't individually tag the mice, but the mice <laughs> had completely cleaned out the whole view of the camera of all balsam root oh, seeds. Oh, wow. <laughs> so you could imagine how hard it is to establish balsam root because every time you put down seed, the mice eat it. They would dig it up. Oh, wow. And you can't have seed drills. This isn't a farm. You know, right. a farm would have like a little <laughs> seed drill that goes, digs a little bit in the ground. I don't think people know it has a little tiny plow in front of it, or a little hoe in front of it. And then it has this very delicate mechanism that drops the seed. If you're in a glacial outwash soil, that right. breaks within the first three feet. Right. You know, yeah. these expensive yeah. items are flying left and right. So you have to scatter the seed, but even if they would bury it just a little bit and they would do this by hand, the mice would smell it and dig it up. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> what we've mainly focused on recently are the rare plants or plants, meaning that they don't have a lot of seed to just disperse across the landscape or mm -hmm. alternately the ones that the mice eat. Gotcha. So how are you involved with the conservation nursery program? I was approached in 2009 when I was a graduate student at the Evergreen State College. I was approached by Nalini Nadkarni, who was the faculty founder of the Sustainability in Prisons Project. And she had heard that I had some experience in horticulture and the land managers wanted to recover the prairies on the South Salish lowlands. They needed to grow maybe 10,000 to 100,000 plants. They were kind of broad with it. And she goes, do you think you can do this? I'm like, well, there's a big difference. And, <laughs> and I'm like, well, where do you want? Well, we want to do this in correction centers. I was like, okay. And I never even thought of a correction center. I mean, like, you know what I mean? Just was one of those individuals that never entered my mind. What happens at a correction center? I know people obviously go there. Right. I know it's a large part of our social structure, but I hadn't really thought about what one was like. And, and I was like, well, that sounds interesting. Why don't I give a series of horticultural and gardening talks for a fall and see what it's like? So I've made a small curricula, you know, five lectures, I think, just to their gardening and horticulture programs at three different correction centers. Mm -hmm. And I found those individuals that I was presenting to, it was at three men's correction centers, were very interested in what I was presenting. And not only that, they could take it and do something with it in these gardens that they were establishing already. And they were thirsty for information. Awesome. They were willing participants in discussions around what is organic agriculture, what makes small scale agriculture, what are the appropriate things to grow in the Pacific Northwest. They were very engaged. And I found that refreshing. It's not that people in the general public aren't interested in it at all, but there was a big need. So I found that satisfying. The other thing that 
stood out to me was I was approaching some of these land managers, people that were working for Department of Defense Wildlife um, Division or others. And some of them were saying, oh, well, we can't wait to have this started. This would be great. We could get, we grow plants for half the cost. We could buy them other places. <laughs> and I was like contemplating this going, okay, do I really want to be involved? That's not yeah. my motivation. I had this motivation of these people that were really interested in it. I didn't have any sense of what a correction center was like. I had been there that fall, but that doesn't give me that right. much idea. Mm -hmm. I don't like the idea that these people are looking for something cheap. Right. right. I brought it to Nalini and I said, this is my concern. I want to bring something to the incarcerated individuals to have them start to participate. But I don't think that's how the conservation community is seeing it. She goes, I fully understand your point. But because you see that, I want you to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She's smart. Yeah. <laughs> but she got what she wanted. <laughs> Right. And I've been working for 10 years plus with both the perception of conservation and the conservation community and the perception of what people think a correction center is and those who are incarcerated and to realize that there are people in the middle who are incarcerated, who can participate in conservation while they're being incarcerated, that they have a valuable service to offer and they should get something out of it also. So that has been one of our main efforts at SPP is to always think about what we can provide to those who are incarcerated while they participate in this program and educate both the conservation community and the correction centers and the Washington State Department of Corrections that there's a place where they can all meet and they can all benefit each other. Right. Because it's just as weird to the Department of Corrections that we're raising plants in there as it is for the conservation community. Right. <laughs> Everyone thinks it's really yeah. weird. I mean, I'm sure even to the incarcerated people on some level, they're like, wait, we're going to come in here and grow plants? I rarely meet an individual who's incarcerated who doesn't feel like they can contribute something to the whole recovery of the species and the benefit of the landscape. That's because they choose to be in the program, for right. one. That's why I've never met those individuals. <laughs> but also that they come there with interest and it starts to raise up their profile in the community that they live in. Oh, look at this interesting job that they have. Look what they're actually learning. And beyond that, oh, look, you can get college credit through the Evergreen State College while participating in the program. So all of those things are a benefit to those individuals. Plus, they just plain enjoy doing the work. That's pretty powerful. The last one that they enjoy doing the work? No, the, the, the whole, whole thing. thing. No, okay. <laughs> that they feel like they're contributing to the recovery of a species and everything. Pretty amazing. And that it's respected within the population. Yeah. That recognized as they're doing something kind of cool. Yeah. Which, of course, is what we think, but we're kind of science nerds, so. so yeah. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. But there's more science nerds than you would believe. One of the benefits is, is they get to meet with these conservation practitioners from the outside. So that's the other advantage. We have a series of classes, but they also get to meet and find out, oh, look, look what this is doing out there in the world. And I'm actually participating in that. Mm -hmm. Like right now, we have our largest nursery at Washington Correction Center for Women, which is in Gig Harbor. And during I will put it in context of the, the pandemic that we're currently in. Mm -hmm. And that has caused the Department of Corrections or motivated the Department of Corrections to release a lot of individuals who were close to their release. And they had graduated release, which means you go to the community first. So they started to speed up the release of individuals. This decreased the population um, at WCCW um, significantly. So there was just a small amount of women who are actually around our program. So it's maybe a 400 as opposed to 800 or so. Wow. And that's, that doesn't mean it's decreased the population that much, but around our program, mm -hmm. 
because many of the people that were doing other things around our program who are incarcerated were close to being released anyway, which we might maybe get close is like one to two years. Right. Mm-hmm. So that population decreased significantly. And what that meant, though, is that those smaller amount of women could actually see the program. When we would go in, there wasn't a lot of other programming going on and we were outside. So we were allowed. We didn't have to do any teaching indoors. Mm-hmm. So we had very strict protocols on entering and engaging with those who were incarcerated. And of course, social distancing and all those COVID protocols, but we were allowed to be open and continue to be there. So I got to hear through the grapevine and distantly from like 20 feet, you guys are doing great. You know, just like all of a sudden, (laughs) there's all this stuff, people going, we're so glad you're here. And look at this new garden we put in over here because we don't have our other horticulture program. Mm And they started using the skills that they had to create a more livable environment for them. And they get a lot of support from Department of Corrections to do that. There's a lot of supervision, et cetera. But, but the point is, is that the decreased amount of people increased the, the exposure of horticulture programs and education in a correction center. That's great. Um, what are some of the things that you're most proud of related to your work? I have been working in prairie ecosystems in Western Washington for 15 years or so. So I'm familiar with them. And there is a public area that's a couple thousand acres. It's called Glacial Heritage Preserve. It's managed by the Department of Natural Resources here in Washington, Thurston County Parks, and a private nonprofit called the Center for Natural Lands Management. And I was able to see it as the beginning of larger scale restoration. So imagine just a sea of grass. And it was literally, it looked like a golf course. It wasn't really a golf course, (laughs) but you know, the roughy parts of golf courses. Mm -hmm. And it was very similar grasses. And I won't really disparage too much, but just a little, the turf (laughs) industry, but y'all just spreading a bunch of weeds. Anyway. point I'm making is that we had to burn those (laughs) golf weeds down and it's taken 15, 20 years and sowing plants, sowing seed, planting things out. And now it's a fabulous mosaic of wildflowers with grasses still there, Mm -hmm. but a fabulous mosaic of wildflowers of 50 or so species. Wow. And to see that change in a rather brief period of time in 15 years and to see them reseeding and people have the opportunity to go visit this during Prairie Appreciation Day, which is usually the first weeks of May. And you could actually get a guided tour of this. It's not open all the time, Mm -hmm. but that is open to the public during that period. And you don't get to see that change that occurred, but you can go to different areas to see where this has gone on longest and where they're still working on restoration because it's a big area. So it's been a phenomenal change. It's quite amazing. So that's the landscape level one. Mm -hmm. One of the things I'm most proudest of is in the nursery, we have got a number of these propagation houses in the Pacific Northwest are called hoop houses because they're basically just plastic covered hoops, like a Mm -hmm. giant cloche but they're 15 feet wide and 10 feet high and they're 60 to 70 feet long. And they're pretty basic. They're pretty simple. They have two doors that open in the end and they can get warm in there and everything. And they have some limitations. They can get much too hot if they're not vented. They of course freeze in the winter because they're really Mm -hmm. just a little, little thin thing of plastic, but working with the men who were in the conservation nursery program, we were able to design and they built their hydraulically lifted sides and end walls and vents at the top and built them all themselves because they're not there on the weekends and long holiday weekends. So they can't open the end. So you can imagine how it creates some limitations, right? So this is all automatically done. And not only that, they created it, that it actually functions like some of the highest end greenhouses and that cold air comes in the bottom and hot air goes out the top and it moves air across the surface of the plant. 
Huh. So that creates air circulation within the hoop house. And they designed these things that you don't have dead zones of hot or cold in the hoop house. You don't have areas that dry out much more quickly than other areas. Everything is kind of uniform. They were able to custom set the ventilation and they built this all themselves. Now, you have to remember a correction center is like a little feudal town. And then it has its own laundry. It has its own Mm -hmm. construction center. And these aren't small. These are like, there's 20 guys in there and they know how to use all the woodworking equipment. There's a metal shop. They built all these hoop houses, believe it or not, just by bending the metal themselves right there in their metal shop. These are all handmade, except for the piping itself. And all, Mm -hmm. of course, the wood isn't. They don't go out and hand cut it. You know, I'll get my point. Hand fabricated hoop houses and they built it all and designed it all themselves. That's amazing. And did they initiate it themselves because they found the issue? Yeah, we would talk about the issues and I would say this is the problem. They're like, well, Carl, what do you think of you don't know how many times I get that. Carl, (laughs) what do you think? What do you think put these vents in? And I'm like, could you get us the money? And you have to remember that they have no money. Right. Mm -hmm. So this creates this interesting dynamic and it it might shed some light on for some people who have never worked in a correction center. One of the challenges and training you get early on in a correction center is that when people keep asking you for things, they are attempting to soften you up to potentially compromise yourself and bring them something they're not supposed to. Uh, Contraband, right? uh So a red flag to corrections is for them to ask you for stuff. So how do I balance that? This happened early on. Carl, what about this? What about that? And so I constantly weigh that in my head. And one of the questions that I ask them is that we are all working professionally together. How would this benefit the program? So that's the first. I'm not... Mm -hmm giving this individual something. Let's talk about that in a group. We always function as a crew. So everything's transparent. Then I bring it up to my liaison that is a employee of the Department of Corrections. I say, this is what we've been discussing. Would you like to come to a meeting? And then we also bring it up to the facility manager. So everyone knows that this has happened. Mm -hmm. So as a person, I could have drawn that line early on and said, no, you can't have anything. I'm going to do it my way. And this is how you design a hoop house. Mm -hmm. Or I could take that extra effort and make everything transparent, discuss it with everyone and figure out how it benefits the program or the prairies or whatever we happen to be focusing on and then bring it up the chain of command and say, do we agree with all that? Sometimes I have to bring up to the chain of command to the captain, which is the highest individual in the facility. But that is the steps one needs to take when working in a correction center. And you can imagine that takes a lot of time. Yeah, right. We've worked to not only grow the core plants for the Taylor's Checker Spot Butterfly, but develop protocols and cultivation techniques for over 90 species of native plants that didn't have robust protocols in the past. Now there's known ways to produce them. They can be produced by another outside nursery and we're able to provide that information. And that was all done in this program as a whole. There was no one part that you could just pull out. I couldn't pull out the conservation organizations and all those volunteers who collected the seed on the prairies. I couldn't pull out the administration that is supportive of the programs in the correction center that allows them to get funding for the staff liaison for the time in that. Right. Couldn't pull out any of those because if you do, things fall apart. The biggest one is like the number of technicians. It has decreased. And during the COVID-19 pandemic, Mm -hmm. it's decreased the amount of technicians that can be, that are there. Plus there are periods where one person in a living unit, let's say a living unit is 200, one person becomes ill. And if it's a documented case of COVID, but until then, everyone can't leave their living unit. And then if that person did have COVID, then that whole living unit is quarantined. Mm, Right. And if they can come out, we've got some things that they can come out to the nursery with two of them from the same living unit. 
we can definitely can't be with them right <laughs> you know? and other staff can't either so it's a very they can just come out and do set tasks and a lot of those this year for example they had to just water right mm -hmm. just make sure things are alive then they have to come back in so yeah. it limits the amount of time it's been a struggle just because of that high level of safety that the Department of Corrections is maintaining around that. And you can imagine why. I mean, it could just spread when everyone's moving around. Yeah. yeah. The social distancing is attempted, but very, very difficult. Right. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit more about like how these plants are managed? It happens before. We never just grow plants, right? We always ask what people are going to want for the coming year, and they can contract with us for plants delivered in the fall planting season. So that is our kind of process because it takes an entire year of planting and planning, planting and planting, planting and planning <laughs> to get the plants delivered. But once they're finished, which is, and the rains have come again, we deliver them out to various sites. And it's our primary contractors is the Washington Department of Natural Resources, Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, U.S. Forest Service, and in some cases, the U.S. Department of Fish and Wildlife. And our biggest one is the Department of Defense, which fascinating. <laughs> is at Joint Base Lewis-McChord, which has the largest contiguous prairies left in Western Washington. Oh, wow. And they have the largest program of restoration and maintenance of prairies in Western Washington. And they do that for both training, because it's easier to train with your vehicles and your moving people around and jumping out of airplanes onto prairie grounds, which is why mm -hmm. it was originally established there uh, at Joint Base Lewis-McChord. It's safer than jumping mm -hmm. into a forest. You could imagine right. that. <laughs> yeah. Joint Base has both forest and prairies, but they want to have a certain amount of prairie area to train, but also because they're a federal agency. And when a species is federally listed as threatened or endangered, the army has to abide by federal law. There's no like, yeah. there's no like, oh, couldn't we do an alternative plan? Right. <laughs> that, that's not how they work. And yep. so, for example, like the Nisqually tribe that has their land right next to has very close relationships for gathering their native plants on the base because the base commanders, they understand treaty rights and they have a federal obligation for treaty rights for these gathering plants in their usual and accustomed places, which is the uh -huh. official language from the treaties. So they abide by rules well, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean they're not trying to change the laws in the Senate. <laughs> you know what I mean? It just means right. once the law is written down, they're like, that's the law, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's a bigger issue, but yeah. let's see. Where do we go? Oh, where do these plants go? So these plants get driven out to usually a staging area, and these various state and federal agencies and private nonprofits, I mentioned Wolfhaven mm -hmm. and the Center for Natural Lands Management, will plant them over a period of one to three months in the wintertime, in the fall and winter. And like, what's your average shipment? Well, our average now is around 100,000. We've been up to 350,000 per year. Oh, wow. <laughs> that is when we were shipping to the seed farms. So the Center for Natural Lands Management manages three seed farms in the area that have grown exponentially since 2012. And we were planting those out mm. with seed collected from the wild. And we occasionally have to reestablish those with seed collected from the wild. But most of the plants we grow now are from those seed from the seed farms. So the rare seed that takes a lot to collect from the wild goes to a seed farm. That's called the F1 generation, not to be confused for hybridization, but that's what we call it, the <laughs> F1 generation. We grow F2 out. We try not to grow F3 or 4, which means you would have to increase in a nursery to three or four generations in order to get enough to collect seed. But with some rare plants, 
we have to do that. Wow. The majority of plants are F1. Hmm. So that's so our plants go out to either the seed nurseries or these Taylor's checker spot reintroduction sites or sites that are going to get the Taylor's checker spot butterfly in five or 10 years because they plan mm-hmm. out 20 years. They have a site development plan for 20 years in order to build up enough species diversity on these sites that the butterfly can thrive. So it takes that long Wow! to reduce the weeds, build up a robust population of the target plants, and then reintroduce the butterfly. Wow. And I don't know, some sites go faster than others, right? Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, you have a, they have a 20-year plan. Wow. So let's talk a little bit more about how the conservation nursery technicians are involved in the program. Like, what are their daily tasks? The conservation nursery technicians' daily work is the cultivation of these native plants for restoration. They are tasked with caring and all of the daily steps. So that includes preparing the soil so you have a proper soil mix for the potted plants because it's not your off-the-shelf soil mix. We do customize it to make it more like a glacial outwash soil. It has more pore space. It's more open. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so they do all that preparation. They fill the trays. They catalog and organize the seeds to make sure that they are following the sowing protocols. They refer to all the protocols and then amend them and write detailed notes on any amendments that they do. They sow in excess of 30 species a year from at least 70 to 80 distinct seed lots that all need to be tracked in their record books. So that means tracked on the ground, tracked in their record books, and tracked all the way through the cultivation process. They do all the watering and preparation for the seed to germinate. They're out there hand watering until the seedlings emerge, and they then develop the techniques to reduce the amount of frequency of watering, but still maintain good soil moisture all through the growing period. And that varies species to species and by time of year. So in the winter, it's maintaining a dry enough soil. And in the summer, it's maintaining a moist enough soil without constantly watering. (laughs) Because if you constantly water something, it's not really a prairie plant. Right. Uh, So we're trying to grow prairie plants that naturally dry out in July and August, and some of them go completely dormant. Mm -hmm. But we found if we let them go completely dry in a tube, they don't completely come back. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I've experimented with that too. (laughs) And some do. Some have this little storage unit. They've evolved this little storage. I've literally stacked hundreds of trays up and then it rains. And I'm like, Uh oh, look what sprouted. Oh, oh, I guess we need to do all those trays. They didn't die. So the hardest ones are one ones that go kind of dormant and then if you overwater them they rot uh-huh. and then the easiest ones to grow and then also hard to grow i should say are the ones that don't go dormant at all but fill their cell their their little growing tube completely and suck every little bit of moisture out <laughs> all throughout july and august and then you watering them so much just to keep them alive that they can sometimes the edges will rot or it's kind of a touchy situation so all of this requires a lot of skilled labor and mm-hmm. sensitive observation which are two of the biggest things that I teach people experience with the plants and then sensitive observation, but you're not just like spray water. It's fun. <laughs> I love watering in the middle of the day because it's cooling me off and I'm watering my feet more than I'm watering the plants. And that's fine. No, you have to make sure you're thorough and going over every part of it. And they don't have um, iPods, obviously, or, or phones in the correction center. They have these things called little J players and they can they put on their headphones and then go out there and water and they enjoy that so it is somewhat mind-numbing irrigation but um yeah 
most of these, even if we have overhead irrigation, requires you to go out there and look to see how effective it is and hand water to supplement. So that's mm-hmm. a big part of their work. So they follow everything through sensitive observations, reporting on everything, keeping a good log and reporting back to the graduate student who goes in weekly and they develop tools to handle any insect disease or weed problems that may occur that are appropriate for a correction center. We do not get specialized permission to get any fungicide or Mm. pesticide Uh into the facility. So it's really your most basic organic certified ones. Mm -hmm. And even even those have to be monitored because like, I don't know if you know this, but a, a soap spray in the mixed form is fine, but in the concentrate form has a danger label. Because if you get that in the eye in the concentrate, oh. it's very serious. Huh. You have to get that flushed out within a few minutes or you could have corneal damage because oh, wow. this is a concentrate form, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't really use any inorganic or commercial pesticides, mm-hmm. but that's also because most of these are being put out for an insect to eat in the wild. So one does not know the future effects of any of these things. Right. Yep. Soap breaks down to its essential fatty acids fairly quickly. So that's the most toxic thing that we Mm -hmm. use. The technicians also maintain inventory and assist the graduate student with that and prep it for delivery. Wow. How many people are dedicated to this program? I don't know if it's easier to talk about in an individual prison or overall. That has been very much in flux over the past year and a half. I would love to have 18 to 48 people to do the work. Right now, sometimes we're half that. Hmm. Sometimes we don't have anyone or they're out there very briefly. (laughs) Right. That's the amount of people that would be necessary to do the work. We certainly could accommodate more individuals. However, since we have one liaison or one staff member dedicated Mm. to each of these activities, though other staff members and the correctional officers will assist with security and safety, one liaison is directly involved. And Generally, supervising more than four to six people can be quite difficult in a correction mm-hmm. setting. Sure. Or any setting. <laughs> or <Truly>. any setting. <laughs> So what are some of the benefits that incarcerated individuals receive for participating in this program? Right now, we're in the process of working with Evergreen to get an established credit-bearing classes that are awarded while they're incarcerated. Currently, they receive a certificate that allows them to apply for credit at Evergreen. Uh. But it's a much bigger step Mm -hmm. for Evergreen to award credit. We want to provide the technicians who are working in our program a college credits for the classes that they take and the academic work that they do in conjunction with vocational credits for the time and skills they develop in the nursery. Mm-hmm. Right now, they can be awarded up to 30 credits or two different certificates, each bearing 15 credits. And these can be presented at Evergreen and Evergreen then evaluates them and talks to us often and then awards those credits to the individuals. They also get an opportunity to participate in the learning process and developing protocols and instructional information for future technicians. So so they can actually analyze and then create curricula that could be used again. So they change protocols, change techniques. That's an important thing we always provide room for is that feedback. And this has allowed us to create a For example, a gardening curriculum with Oregon State Extension, and that's a peer-to-peer curricula that means incarcerated individual teaches incarcerated individual at a pilot program in one facility and then hopefully picked up by multiple ones in the near future. So that grew out of this reaching out to those past students 
to develop future curriculum. Hmm. Is there anything else that you would like to add? In the future, I would like the Sustainability in Prisons Project Conservation Nursery to reach out to other agencies to build a coalition to provide them not only with plant material that they may need, but also training opportunities that the technicians that go through in correction centers could then find employment at various levels at state agencies. And it doesn't have to be, what I mean by that is it could be an entry level job, right? Mm -hmm. but a technician level job at state agencies. We've only had a few examples of people who have gone through the conservation nursery. Now the butterfly technicians have had a little more accomplishment when it comes to post-employment. Mm -hmm. in the field or in a related field. And I would like to be able to reach out to state agencies to develop those opportunities. So to make this actually training for employment. And the other goal would be to make this educational program that has the Evergreen State College giving credit to people who are incarcerated to institutionalize that and have it be celebrated by everyone involved yeah just a very small task there i mean <laughs> probably in the next year as you're coming out of the covid crawl here is a good time to shoot for that, that goal. yeah <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Carl, for all of your information about the conservation nursery programs within the Sustainability in Prisons project. I learned a ton. It seems like there's a lot of really cool things going on. Yeah, it's been a really fascinating conversation. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I appreciate your interest and I hope more people become interested and find out about it through your podcast. Exactly. Thank you. So there you have it. The end of episode four. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Mm. Hopefully you learn more about SPP's programs and how they are really about bringing education, nature, and training into prisons. And they're definitely not just about cheap labor. And I think maybe most importantly, these programs often change the way that people view themselves, boosting their self-confidence and making them feel like they could do more. Yeah, that's really cool. We also learned a ton of stuff about the oak prairies of the South Salish lowlands and some of the conservation restoration efforts for both the prairies themselves and endangered species like the Taylor's checkerspot butterfly. We learned about how the conservation technicians participate in the program and some of the benefits of these kinds of programs. Carl also shared the satisfaction of watching restoration projects over time, especially if you see them at the beginning, and the satisfaction of watching and supporting people people creatively solve problems. This episode showcases what a big partnership with SVP might look like. While this might not be the right fit for every organization, it certainly seems to be very beneficial for those who can coordinate these kind of efforts and bring nature and learning into our prisons. Please join us for our next episode, which will be all about the SPP Conservation Partnership for the Taylor Checkerspot Butterfly Recovery Program. That's a mouthful. Yes, it is. We will let Kelly rest for one episode and chat with Mary Linders again and Liz Louie, a former butterfly technician. The next episode will be released in two weeks on August 2nd. Mm. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, will, will we, we make, make it out alive? alive? This is Amy the Poop Detective, removing the plug on this prairie. Aren't we supposed to be putting <laughs> plugs in? <laughs> and this is Jen, the magical mapper, questioning reality. You remember what button stops recording? I, that's why I was scrambling. Wait, 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 wait. I'm not ready yet. Okay. Now I'm All ready. Right. <laughs>